Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today, we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Monconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio, we have got Gavin Phipps looking uh, tan and trim from his trip to Seoul. Good evening. Is that how a tan and trim person sounds? All right. Also in studio with us, uh, we're happy to welcome back onto the show Yuan Ming Chao of the China Post. Good to have you back, man. It's great to be back. And also good to welcome back a guy uh, who we haven't had in a little bit of time, Michael Fahey of Winkler Partners, who uh, helps break down some of the finer points of policy issues around Taiwan. Good to be back, Keith. On the show today, we got about half a year's worth of rain squeezed into just a few days last week. That caused a few problems in the form of massive flooding in Taiwan's center and south. We'll take a look at the damage and also... Uh, in a few minutes, we'll bring on former Minister of the Interior, Li Hongyuan, to discuss some of his ideas for solutions. Then, speaking of crazy weather, climate change is still a thing. Despite the fact that the U.S. has announced its plans to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement, Taiwan is saying it will continue efforts to curb emissions. We'll discuss how seriously we should take those statements. And a proposal to bring in foreign interns is taking heat. Critics say it's just a sneaky way of sneaking in cheap foreign workers. Michael works on these issues, so we'll be getting his take. And then last up on the show, we are heading out to sea. We'll round out the show looking at a project trying to recreate the journeys of ancient seafarers between Taiwan and Okinawa. But first, Sunday marks the 28th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square Massacre. As we discussed on the show last week... The event was marked here in Taiwan as well. More than 100 people attended an event near Taipei's Liberty Square to make remembrances and call for the release of detained human rights activist Li Mingzhi. Uh, someone else marked the event, President Tsai Ing-wen, Gavin. Yeah, she took to her Facebook page, she did, Keith. That's where all, all, all high politics happens now on either Facebook or Twitter. I guess so. It's good yeah. for Yuan Ming, because he's the social media guy. Right. Anyway, President Tsai took to her Facebook page on Sunday and she urged Beijing to face the Tiananmen Square massacre with an open mind. And she penned that Taiwan is willing to share its experience of transforming into a democratic country with Beijing should Beijing so desire some assistance in this sort of way of getting around things, you know, getting mm-hmm. democracy. Right, so basically, you know, we, we, we made a democracy over here. We could yeah. help out. She said, in fact, Taiwan is willing to share its experience of transitioning to a democracy so that pain in China can be kept to a minimum. Mm. All right, so laudable sentiments, trying to help out. China did not respond, respond super well. No, came back on Monday and said, no, no, if you come in, shut up. It said, <laughs> shut up. Paraphrasing, paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing slightly, but here we go. China said, basically, that values and ideas pushed forward by Tsai Ing-wen and her party have caused chaos on the self-ruled island. That being Taiwan? That being Taiwan. And China's Taiwan Affairs Office went on to say that only mainland Chinese had the right to speak on mainland affairs, while suggesting that Tsai could better spend her time reflecting on what it called the widespread discontent in Taiwan and the reasons behind why cross-strait ties had reached such an impasse. Hmm. All right. So it's kind of like the he who smelt it dealt it nah uh level of civil discourse that we're getting. She only offered help in hand. Yeah. It's right. like, you got a lot of shopping. Can I carry your bags for you, madam? 
Well, and she goes, nah, get out of it. I'm carrying my own bags. Could come off as condescending. Could come off as condescending. More luxury than, you know, offering to hold bags. But anyway, Yuan Ming, so uh, interesting dynamic that uh, cross-strait relations has taken on this week. Do you think that it's important that President Tsai, you know, be out there advocating for these values? Yeah, I think it's an important statement for a leader of Taiwan to make. Um, uh, Ma Ying-jeou, as president, has... Uh, when he was president, made these uh, remarks every year, and even before he was uh, president. Um, Tsai Ing-wen started making remarks about uh, Tiananmen's anniversary when she became chairman of the DPP. Um, but to be fair, I would say that these comments are, you know, the way that cross-strait relations are right now. Um, she doesn't, it's not much of a risk to say these things because, um, couldn't get much worse. Yeah, they couldn't get much worse. How is the DPP really going to share its experiences when when dialogue is at this point? And, you know, in the past, Tang Wen has used, um, July, uh, used the Tiananmen anniversary to kind of criticize the Ma administration. You know, when relations between Taiwan and China are good, then uh, she goes, you know, don't forget about uh, June 4th. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, when relations are bad, um, there's really not much to lose if you're going to, you know, bring this issue Mm -hmm. to the forefront. And so I think this is mainly for domestic consumption, telling people in in Taiwan, look, um, I I care about Chinese democracy in some regard, um, and um, I'm I'm putting this out there. There's nothing much to lose about that. Mm. Yeah, Michael, so what do you see there? I mean, it sounds like Yuan Ming basically saying, you know, it's nice to stand up for these values, but probably not a statement of huge consequence. Not really. Uh, Taiwanese and Chinese relations at the moment are in a deep freeze. The two sides are basically ritualistically talking to each other. No one in Taiwan is particularly interested in what President Tsai is saying. The contrast with Hong Kong, for example, where there was a large commemoration is very striking compared to Taiwan. Um... But for whatever reasons, the president feels that she needs to make these statements, and she did. All right. Well, we covered this uh, topic last week in some depth, so maybe we can leave it at that for today. Up next, our cup runneth over. A lot. Like, way too much. Early this week, Taiwan was hit hard by torrential rains that left many regions around Taiwan struggling to cope with fast-rising floodwaters. Uh, Gavin, how bad were those floods? They were quite bad, actually, across much of the island, in fact. Um, I don't have the figures for the amount of rainfall that fell, but I do have losses for the agriculture sector in front of me. Mm. And apparently agricultural losses so far have have rounded out at about 250 million NT. Okay. Which is quite a lot of damage to agriculture sectors. It's like a typhoon-sized level of losses. Yeah, Nanto County was suffered the heaviest losses, and they're coming in about 70 million NT, and that was about over 33% of the total nationwide. Yunlin County reported losses, followed by Kaohsiung also reported losses. They both reported around 30 million NT worth of losses. New Taipei, 20 million worth of losses, and Taidong, about 18 million NT worth of losses. Crop damage accounted for most of the losses, and some 4,500 hectares of farmland were damaged. Now, it's, it's summer here in Taiwan. I, was, I, was, I shed a tear over this because watermelon farmers took the biggest hit. Mm. Who doesn't like watermelon? Well, yeah. I'm sure there's some bigoted fool that doesn't <laughs> like watermelon, but I like watermelon. 
Apparently, watermelon crops suffered some 25 million NT worth of damage and 390 hectares of watermelon farmland was washed away in the rain. Mm, okay, Which so. means that watermelons have gone up in price. In fact, everything's gone up in price now. The price of cabbage has gone up. Yeah, yeah. And the government was forced to come out with its usual line of we will stamp down on the parasites that are pushing up the price of fruit and vegetables. The the free market, that's what they're going to stamp no, down they're, on? They're called, they're called vegetable insects. Oh, okay. They're the people that push up. After, it's, after it rains here, you know, it rains, cabbages, farms get knacked up, and the price of vegetables and fruit go up, and people hoard vegetables and fruit. Mm. And they're basically called vegetable insects. Okay. They hold the vegetables and fruit to make the price go up. All right, so look out for those vegetable insects. Uh, meanwhile, though, there was also some criticism for the uh, administration. A lot of uh, local officials saying that not enough was done to prepare for the flooding. Well, no, it's rain, isn't it? It's the weather. And not enough was done to repair for the weather. Okay, I, well, I was trying to, to set I, you I, up I, for the I, next part of the story, but know, I'll just do it myself, Gavin. We weren't prepared for the weather. <laughs> what I was trying to set up for was uh, the government was put a little bit on the back foot this week, uh, and uh, their response was that they are going to make flood prevention a part of the cabinet's forward-looking infrastructure development program. Uh, there are now calls to you know appropriate uh, a big chunk of that change uh, towards flood prevention. Um, so. Uh, definitely there was a little bit of a conversation this week about how Taiwan can't prepare for this in the future, especially given the fact that a lot of people see this uh, week's weather event as perhaps linked to climate change. A lot of people are making that connection. Yuan Ming made that connection in an editorial piece in the China Post. So that's definitely how it was seen. And because that's how it was seen, you know, it's, it's very much believed that this sort of thing will get worse with time. This is not the kind of thing where you just wait it out and it gets better. Uh, definitely thought that uh, over the next few decades, flood, flooding and also, ironically, droughts are, are going to become more persistent and uh, a bigger issue for Taiwan. Because we had one them two years ago, I remember. We did. We, did we had a drought. Yeah. It wasn't quite Saharian sort of conditions, though, was it? it it w- well, it was it was inconvenient. My water got shut off uh, for a few days, so certainly inconvenient. Um, and uh, a lot of people are saying, basically, uh, in the future, it's either going to be drought or flood. You're never going to get that happy middle. So, given that this is a growing concern for the nation, uh, I decided I would speak with Dr. Li Hongyuan. He is, of course, the former Minister of the Interior, uh, served back during the Ma administration. He is also a noted water expert, currently serving uh, in the Civil Engineering Department, focusing on hydraulic engineering at National Taiwan University. He's sort of been a voice for reforming this aspect of Taiwan's infrastructure for years and years and years, trying to get folks to think more about it, uh, get more realistic solutions. Uh, In this case, he says basically that Taiwan has spent billions on flood prevention over the years. But, you know, with that sort of climate change that we're talking about, uh, Taiwan actually may not really be able to solve this problem in the way that they've been approaching it. Uh, And he says that really some uh, new thinking needs to be brought to bear here. So uh, I spoke with him recently. He walked me through his thinking on this. In the past, every 19 years, we are going to have a severe flood in Taiwan, now every two years. And in the past, every 17 years, we are going to have a severe flood, now drops to every nine years. So the, the record told us that it's either flood or drought, nothing between. And in the past, we blindly believed that human beings can conquer nature. So we spent billions, billions of, 
of money on structural measures. Actually, it has been proved that, of course, structural measures, they do provide some protection. But, but come to the, the so-called extreme weather conditions, I think we have to have another thought. That's why I quite, uh, try to promote so-called low-impact development, using urban design measures to solve the flood problems in, in a city, or you can call it sponge city. So that's in another way, because in the past we believe that we give all the, 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 the obligation to water resource agency and ask them to solve the problem. <clears throat> and the water resource agency is an agency that only in charge of engineering. So for the last maybe 30 years, we, our major is always dike, pumping stations and water gate, nothing else. And, uh, and now I, I try to promote, a couple of years ago, try to promote using urban design measures to, to solve the flood problem in the cities. That means we can we keep the city, uh, just we, we design the city just like a sponge so that when the rainfall comes, the, most of some of the water can be, can be stored in, in underground. Then after the after the rain, uh, we can gradually release the water from from the storage. And by by doing that, we can reduce the the the, the investment on on the so-called the traditional uh, drainage system. And that can be much cheaper. But why don't why why did we did not do that? Because the structural measures is very simple. Only civil engineering. Only one ministry and one bureau in charge. But by doing the so-called sponge city, in the central government, there are two or three ministries involved. In the local city government, there are five direction bureaus. There are five bureaus involved. And in a university, there are three disciplines. So it's the structural-wise, the engineering-wise, it's not that difficult. Actually, it's just a small project. But it's very difficult is there are two key words. I call it interdiscipline dialogue and interagency cooperation. You have to work as a team, but there's not no more and not easy to most of the government operation. So I, that, that means that according to our, our records, uh, extreme weather condition become normal. We, we, we use change our way of thinking and we should change the way of solving our flood problem. Hmm. So just to make sure that I and our listeners uh, understand exactly what you're getting at here, when you say, you know, a, a sponge city or the ability to get more water, are we just talking about expanding the sewage system and the and the gutter system that catches water? What what exactly would that mean? No, no, no. Uh, actually, we do have an existing uh, drainage system. For example, in the city of Taipei. It can it can take a seventeen point eight millimeter per hour rainfall, and that's a big number. Actually, uh, most of most of the city in the world they they cannot have they did not have such a big uh, drainage system, but still have to get flooded because in the past, of course, seventeen point eight millimeter rainfall is a very high standard uh, drainage system. In the past, there's no problem. But ever since 19, ever since uh, late 20th centuries, it's easily in Taiwan we have 
the uh, rainfall over 100 millimeter per hour. Easily every typhoon brings in 2,000 millimeter uh, rainfall and even 3,000 millimeter rainfall. So it tells us that if you just believe in drainage system, that cannot solve the problem. The idea of low impact de development is actually there are almost probably there are uh, 11 elements. It can be detention basin, can be constructed wetland, can be rain garden, uh, can be bioswale, can be low lying uh, park, can be previous uh, pavement. There are so many combinations. That means when the rainfall comes, the, the water can store it can be stored in the detention basin, can be stored through the previous uh, parking lot, can be, can be stored underground, just like uh, before it, it was developed. Then, then, of course, some of them still go to the traditional uh, drainage system. Uh, by doing that, that means the, actually the rainfall is the same, the, what I call it runoff. The flood did the discharge because we delay the, the 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 rain to 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 come together and to to make a, a much bigger uh, flood peak. We can reduce the peak. Uh, that means by doing that, we can return the condition of the of the city back to the city it was not developed. Most of the water was preserved underground. Actually, we all we can also call it water-sensitive urban planning and design. So there are so many combinations, so many measures, not just drainage and sewage. There are a lot of another, another alternatives. But the, 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 the major I just mentioned is, it's not a traditional hydraulic way of thinking. The, the architect, landscape, landscape designer, and urban uh, city planners, they have to come together and sit and work as a team. Mm. Now, this week, President Tsai came out and said that she wants to see some of the money in her forward-looking investment uh, infrastructure p uh, plans go to flood prevention. I didn't hear her mention uh, any of the items that you just brought up. Do you think that this uh, investment plan could support some of the measures that you're talking about, or are you not too optimistic there? <laughs> I'm not, not that optimistic. Is <clears throat> of course, it's the right direction. I'm very glad uh, President Tsai uh, uh, promised that they, the government wants to reallocate some of the money on on flood prevention. But in the past, for 20 years, if you if you give the authority to water resource agency, actually the major to promote is the tra traditional majors. Because that the, 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 if the government has the intention, and and actually several ministries should sit down and work as a team, and then come out with the measures, then come out with the budgets, then allocate the money. Just before it's deciding how much money is, is going to put in flood uh, flood prevention, we should think what kind of measures we are going to use and what are the members in the team. So I call it institu institutional mapping and knowledge mapping. How many knowledge, how many experts should be involved? How many government agencies should be involved? And assign a good project manager, and this manager can allocate the budget so that 
we can solve the problem. And also by doing that, we can reduce the expense of our our flood prevention. Mm. Now, just looking forward, it sounds like you're pretty sure that climate change is going to make this a problem that gets worse with time. So give us sort of your, your nightmare scenario. What happens to Taiwan? What kind of cost are we going to pay if we don't adequately prepare for this future where we're going to be seeing more and more flooding and more and more drought uh, every year? Yeah, I think the, the statistics statistics have told us that uh, severe flood and severe droughts will come very often. And, and uh, in the in, for last two decades, we have already spent, I think it's over a couple of hundred billion NT try to solve our either water shortage problem or our flood problem. But still, we are, we are still facing, still we are very fragile, even we have already spent so much money. Actually, I can very proud to say that we are more waterproofing country than most of the country in the world. But still, we are facing extreme weather conditions. The investment we have, we have met uh, in the last two or three decades still, still cannot prove that we are safe. <clears throat> that means you can, also, you can also call it a global warming, but actually I call it extreme weather conditions by any reason. But that's when extreme extreme weather conditions become normal. What can we do? So we have to design under uncertainty. We have to be using a risk into our design. So we have to change our mindset. We have to work as a team. Otherwise, you can see just a monsoon, not even typhoon. Taiwan get flooded for last last week, and the year I think probably three years, four years ago. The same monsoon <clears throat> hit southern part of Taiwan, and the, dis- and the damage is even bigger, even bigger, because it's in the south. People did not really pay attention. But I would say the monsoon can bring so much rainfall, will become normal. And uh, our, even our flood protect- protection system for Taipei, for example, 200-year flood. Supposedly, our dike has to be protect Taipei against 200-year flood events. <clears throat> but in the past, I can I can assure that Taipei is very is very safe. But now I cannot guarantee because the the design, the the number the the we use is based on the record for last hundred years. But now extreme weather condition is become become the, the rainfall become bigger and bigger. In the, in mathematics, they call it singularity. There are so many singularity beyond. beyond our design, our, our our safety code. So we have to change the mindset. And then unfortunately, it will become normal. Not only Taiwan, I think it's the challenge of human beings. All right. And uh, once again, we were speaking there to Dr. Li Hong Yuan. Uh, we're going to be leaving behind that whole conversation now and heading up on a break. When we return, Taiwan says it's committed to climate reduction, but... How much can it really do? We discuss a new law aims to make it easier for foreign talent to get internships in Taiwan. But could those interns drive down wages for local white-collar workers? And researchers are gearing up to test ancient sea routes with their own traditionally crafted raft. But, actually, I, I don't think that there is a downside here. No but on that one. Uh, just a fun project 
testing an interesting idea, and we'll have a Maybe. fun. We're gonna have a fun conversation, Gavin. Maybe. We're, because there may be that one, because maybe they'll make it, or maybe they won't. Okay, all right, there there we go. But will they make it? That's the but on that one. But will they make it across the sea? All that and more when we return to Taiwan this week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Yuanming Chao, and Michael Fahey. Heard in the last half how climate change will pose challenges for Taiwan in the coming years. But what will Taiwan be doing to actually reduce its own emissions and help limit climate change? Well, in the wake of the United States' decision to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreements, the presidential office made a point of coming out and declaring... They are going to keep fighting the climate fight, Gavin. Apparently they are. They're going to come... <coughs> that was bad air. Hmm. Bad air today in northern Taiwan. I do apologize. <laughs> Apparently it's moderate, according to the That's EPA. What they say. That's what they say. Yes. Yes, Taiwan's going to come out and slash carbon emissions, go nuclear-free, and it's all going to be wine and roses and green grass everywhere. Well, they... Again, yes. paraphrasing. Paraphrasing. But even more recently, uh, that, that comment that you're alluding to is uh, a comment from some time ago, basically saying that uh, Taiwan is going to shoot for no nuclear by 2025. Uh, we've also heard some pledges that there will be no increases in prices, although uh, about, I think, two weeks ago, uh, the, uh, one minister came out and said, well, maybe it'll go up 10%. But So that, that particular number is a little unclear. I didn't quite get where the 10% came. If my last electricity bill went up by 10%, I would have paid 110 NT. It's not so bad, right? It's not I so bad. I figured that was okay. Yeah. yeah, could deal with that. But uh, so that's that's kind of old news. The new news is the presidential office coming out this week with an official statement saying that they are going to continue fighting climate change at the national level. Uh, basically, according to the executive, you're on the government agencies are preparing nearly 200 carbon emission reduction proposals. They didn't give us much more than that, but we we should expect a lot of proposals. I guess is the main take home point, though. What was uh, interesting, do you, you get this other thing about these environmental groups? that call Yeah, the that's air, the interesting thing. Air yeah. Clean Taiwan. Yep. Apparently it's, it's based somewhere in Yunnan, somewhere in the south, centre-south. Apparently they're going to take to the streets tomorrow, June the 10th, of Yunlin County to demand that the government establish a national task force to fight air pollution and not only fight air pollution, but also promote an energy policy which is based exclusively on renewables. So clearly they're not convinced that the uh, President Tsai is going to do this on her own. They think that they need to apply more pressure. So 100 uh, percent renewables. Uh, Michael, does uh, that sound realistic to you in the over the next couple of years? Well, Taiwan has massive energy needs, and it seems unlikely that they're going to actually be able to replace all of those energy needs with uh, green power. But at the same time, there's a huge effort underway to build solar and wind power in places like Yunlin, as a matter of fact. Uh, the, per, for example, the Tainan City is pushing green energy and solar power, uh, and there's uh, a huge number of European uh, investors who are coming to Taiwan and trying to set up solar plants and wind power. So it's it's an extremely interesting situation at the moment. Uh, it's a big business, and we'll see what happens. Zhanghua County, apparently. Zhanghua Zhang- County has, like, Zhanghua County is going for, like, the most wind farms in Taiwan. Zhanghua, Tainan, Yunlin. 
Mm. Okay, so that's where to look for uh, the future of wind power in Taiwan. <coughs> Yuan Ming, I mean, uh, clearly a lot of countervailing forces here on the one hand you know there's uh, the government is serving a lot of different masters both reducing uh, emissions keeping prices stable all of that uh, how how optimistic are you that they're going to be able to manage that balancing trick i think it's a really hard trick to balance to i think <laughs> i think it's a really it being a trick and all yeah it would be difficult yes i think it's a really um difficult situation because first Taiwan has among the highest per capita of uh, carbon footprint uh, in Asia uh, that was that was during 2011 it could have changed by now but it also has you know those coal firing plants in south central uh, Taiwan are among the worst pollutants uh, in the world mm. and so how are you going to change that and also uh, without raising um, electricity prices. Um, this is something I see as untenable. Um, also, I think the government needs to set um, more clear priorities because right now, um, every, every time a big problem comes up, whether it was this last rain, uh, heavy rains, um, there's a reevaluation about the, the whole infrastructure uh, program. Mm -hmm. And it seems like everything, uh, something happens, then the government says, oh, we can tweak our infrastructure program to, to deal with that. It's going to so fix all the problems. It's going to fix all the problems. It's a yeah. silver bullet. But yeah. you got to come out with a comprehensive plan um, to, if you're going to, if, if it's going to be infrastructure, if it's going to be climate change, prevent, uh, climate change um, um, reduction, reduction, mm -hmm. um, green energy, etc. It has to be comprehensive. It can't just be, oh, we're going to shift some here today and then a little from there tomorrow, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, to be fair, uh, the presidential office did encourage everyone in Taiwan to keep their air conditioners above 26 degrees. So that might go some way. You know, that's some forward thinking right there. Do you want to come to my house and try and make me do that? <laughs> my air conditioner has been broke, so I've actually been doing my part to reduce climate change. Actually, the, the American Chamber here in Taiwan released its annual white paper on Thursday of this week, and actually energy was part of it, basically. Mm -hmm. they, they were concerned, basically saying the transition to a post-nuclear fuel mix is important, but it also has the potential to be economically disruptive if it is implemented too rigidly or quickly without a clear replacement plan that ensures continued cost competitiveness, affordability and reliability of an electrical supply. Because AmCham's members, big businesses, they are concerned that, you know, a break in the supply line, a 20-minute outage of power, and certain factories that make, like, semi-electronics gear could go down. Lots of money being lost there. Right. So AmCham has voiced concern about it. But after the report came out, Economics Minister Li Guang came out, and he basically said, well, you know, the government's has a plan, like you said, Keith. It's got a 10-year goal for stable electricity supplies to facilitate economic growth. He basically came out and said that Taiwan has a clear roadmap for its energy supply transition, which includes foreign investment in renewable energy development to stabilise green power prices and provide adequate electricity. He also said, in keeping with the government's goal of phasing out nuclear power, the Ministry of Economic Affairs earlier this year came up with a plan, another plan, for electricity generation in Taiwan, saying that by 2025, Taiwan should be 50% 
power generated from natural gas and 30% from coal and 20% from renewable energy sources. So not quite the 100% renewables that that one group was calling for. No. Not quite. Not quite. So, But it, it, it does seem like a lot of this plan relies on uh, natural gas remaining cheap and affordable. So uh, still some question marks about how, how, how long all this can be maintained. Unless we all... What they're going to do is they're going to give everyone a shovel, yeah? Mm. They're going to say, go out in a road, dig a hole, and you can build your own biogas plant. There we go. Do-it-yourself biogas yeah, yeah. plant. Because you can't smoke when mm. you're near it, though. That would be a bad that idea. That would be a bad idea, That yeah. would be a bad idea. So... Kind of interesting. I mean, we're hearing, obviously, the business community. I'm sure the local uh, industry also cares a lot about this. Uh, we're hearing a lot of environmentalists care about this. Uh, and the government is talking a good game, but you could really just... In, another way of looking at that is it, it's a way of buttressing Taiwan's international image. But in real practical terms, Michael, what do you think the politics are like on this? Do you really think that uh, there there is going to be a movement to... Uh, promote climate uh, you know, emissions reduction and cleaning up Taiwan's act in that way? Well, I think that's one of the concerns that the American Chamber of Commerce has, because what's happening is that green energy is something that European country, countries are better at than Americans. And they're rushing into Taiwan to invest in solar power and wind power. And at the same time, there are a lot of Taiwanese players who are getting into this game as well. Uh, traditionally, Americans have built many of the turbines and nuclear power plants in Taiwan. So, of course, they're, they're concerned. At the same time, though, the government is guaranteeing to Corning and other giant manufacturers that there will be no interruptions of power and that Taiwan's power supply is absolutely safe. I think in the end, it's probably consumers who are going to end up paying more and suffering any cuts if they actually happen, which was the case in the 90s. Mm. And of course, we had another. We had an orange alert this week. Another orange alert because the temperatures got so high in Taipei that power supplies dropped. Apparently, the reserves dropped to about six percent again. Mm. Uh, Yuan Ming, uh, it, it sounds there like maybe there's a, an industry solution to all this. How much do you think the politics are going to matter at the end of the day? Um, it's very important that the policies are consistent. But again, as Michael said, it's a it's a big opportunity. Look at Gogoro. Uh, Gogoro um, is expanding uh, beyond Taiwan to European cities. Um, that presents uh, it, it showcases that Taiwan can be an innovator in this field. Um, so the government needs to do more to uh, support local industries that promote uh, renewable energy usage. Yeah. Mm. All right. But then, of course, you have play the I'll play the um, I'll play the devil's advocate. Yeah. Anyway, just because I can. But you come up to the you come up to the big problem of a. It's great to have a huge wind farm, but of course wind farms take up a large amount of land, and they're noisy. Not and they're noisy if you live close enough. If you to live, them. that's my point. If you live close enough to them, and of course Taiwan doesn't have a lot of land, especially flat land. Got a lot of hills, got quite a few mountains, not a lot of flat land. And then of course, so the government comes along and says, "We'll put wind farms here. Very nice. We'll put them in the sea. We'll put them here." Um, then local residents, of course, not in my backyard, rears his ugly head, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So it's all right saying we agree with wind power and other forms of renewable energy, but we really don't want you to build them here. Can you build them over there? South China Sea. That's the place to do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the protests were what, back in 2013, 2014? Pretty, pretty large protests by uh, local residents against these uh, wind turbines. So uh could pose a, a, a bit of a challenge... 
But uh, I guess we're just going to have to wait to see how all of that shakes out. I don't think that we even... What kind of lighting are we using here? Are we doing... Are these... LED at least these do not look yes, very these are LED lighting yeah yeah we're ICRT part of the solution as always <laughs> moving right along and on to issues of the workplace uh, we talk a lot about ideas for making Taiwan more globally competitive on the show well a draft bill under consideration in the legislative yuan would aim to help bring more talented young people to Taiwan by loosening immigration requirements for young interns does a lot of other stuff as well. This is just one part of the bill. Uh, Michael has actually come on the show to discuss it with us before. Uh, basically aimed at, uh, from the perspective of foreign white-collar workers, just you know, making it easier to live and work here in Taiwan. But some labor advocates are looking at this intern issue and crying foul, warning that the move could create a backdoor for cheap foreign labor to enter Taiwan's workforce and undercut local workers. Uh, Gavin, what, what exactly is the proposal that they're talking about here? This is the cabinet, the executive UN, the government. Here we go, the people that run the show. They've proposed granting one-year visas to foreign college graduates within two years of their graduation and a two-year internship visa to specialists in the field of science, technology, engineering and math. So or, none of us here. At, this or, wouldn't cover any of us. Or math. As uh-huh. I would say, being English with an S. I feel Just, a little excluded. Put exclu- that in there. Well, either way, I now, feel excluded. At present, only current students can apply for internship visas, not graduates in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Now, the proposed bill would also relax constraints on residence and work permits, taxation, healthcare, and retirement benefits to attract foreign white collar workers to make up for what the government's calling a brain drain. Right, so the the critics are basically saying that this is going to make it easier for companies. The 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 real, you know, we talk uh, about how this is, uh, you know, about attracting foreign talent, blah blah blah. But the real issue here is that companies are looking for uh, a way to get cheap white collar workers and undercut the local job market and the wages there. Loopholes, they've called it. Loopholes. Opponents of this bill uh, say that the. It would create loopholes for companies to introduce cheap foreign workers and lower average salaries. Meanwhile, defenders of the bill, at least uh, one, Karen Yu, who a uh, legislator from the DPP, she came out and basically said the number of interns that this would likely bring to Taiwan are so minuscule it really wouldn't have any of those negative effects that people are worried about. The Premier also came out on Thursday and defended it. So... Uh, a lot of furor, a lot of hue and cry. Apparently, there was a, a quite an uproar on the internet. Uh, people very concerned about all this. Michael, uh, so you uh, have come on the show talking to us before about uh, this larger bill and uh, what you're hoping it could do for attracting foreign talent, making it easier for uh, professionals to live and work here in Taiwan. What do you make of uh, this particular dispute? Well, to be honest, Keith, I don't really know what to make of this. This is the most important bill that affects foreigners in Taiwan since the 1999 changes to the Immigration Act that created permanent residence. The bill allows permanent residents to join the new pension plan. It allows adult children of permanent residents who grew up in Taiwan to stay in Taiwan. It also allows permanent residents to retain their permanent residence uh, for up to five years without being in Taiwan. It's, it's, a, it's a big change. It's a big deal for members of the international community. What's surprising is that one article in this bill, Article 20, about internships, has created – 
a tremendous uproar in the Taiwanese on the Taiwanese internet, on PTT,、uh, in the media. I think most of the international community is unaware that more attention has been paid to foreigners in the last week than probably has been paid attention to them in the past ten years. We're famous. <laughs> We're <Finally> . famous. <laughs>、uh, the 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 issue、uh, is supposed to be interns.、Uh, personally, I believe that this was a procedural tactic by DPP legislator Lin Shufen. There are supporters and opponents of this law on both the DPP and the KMT side. This is completely bipartisan. Partisan issue.、Mm-hmm. Uh, Lin Shufen from New Taipei City has been opposing almost every change involving foreigners since 2015, when Mindjo wanted to relax work permits. She wants to impose a minimum wage on foreign graduates of Taiwanese universities,、uh, and now she's come out against interns. And it's the the pattern makes you start to wonder what her motivations really are. The situation is that. Internships for college students have been legal since 2009, according to the Ministry of Edu-、uh, the Ministry of Economic Affairs. About 500 came to Taiwan last year. Lin Shufen has come up with figures showing that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs issued 1,500 visas. But either way, it's either 500 people or 1,500 people. And that number has been built up over nine years. It's not very many people. No one expects that more than. A thousand or two thousand foreign postgraduate interns would come to Taiwan. So why the bitter opposition to this is the question. But、uh, as a supporter of the bill, I have to recognize that she has acted as a master politician, has mobilized tremendous opposition to this issue,、uh, and frankly, I'm quite pessimistic about whether this bill, which I said earlier is the most important thing. That's happened to foreigners、uh, in the last, basically, in the last two decades, is ever going to pass at this point?、Mm. Just, just to try to get at what her concerns are there exactly. I guess the concern would be, how do you define what an intern is? And、uh, I think that this takes,、uh, if, if if somebody is considered an intern, it would take out the pay floor <laughs> on their salary, so you could pay them as little as you wanted. Is is that kind of the concern here? Yeah, absolutely.、Uh, interns are not considered to be. Workers, the Labor Standards Act does not apply to them. There is no minimum salary, so potentially、uh, employers could be paying interns from Southeast Asia, which I think is the major concern, ten thousand NT a month to come to Taiwan. But I think the 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 disappointing part of this is、uh, if you watch the videos that are online of the legislators talking about this, is the level of grandstanding about this issue. It would be relatively easy to. Solve these problems. For example, the legislators could easily propose a cap of two thousand interns a year, three thousand interns a year. They could require that the minimum subsidy for an intern be twenty-five thousand, thirty thousand NT, something to make it reasonable so that it's not undercutting the, the the job market. But instead, they seem to be mainly interested in. Appealing to younger people who are understandably resentful about the low salary situation, and making points that foreigners are coming here to steal our jobs, which is not has not been the case for the last nine years in the, with the internships for university students, and there's no reason to believe that that will be the case going forward. It's a it's a very strange situation, Keith. Yeah, the、mm. bill actually. I'm reading this here. The bill, the bill we're talking about here, stipulates no minimum wage for foreign interns.、Mm-hmm. So you could basically pay an intern ten NT. 
Yeah. Uh, Yuan Ming, how about you jump in? Yeah. Well, I was just uh, looking at the premier's uh, response to these um, these uh, qualms that the elements within the DPP has about this. And uh, he says, you know, this is an international trend that, you know, Taiwan has to open up to this. Um, and I think that right now, what Michael says is important is that you know there has to be some kind of specifications about uh, what are the the guidelines and the the limits because um, even if we don't look at it if we don't frame it as you know this they're stealing our jobs things we have to ask ask you know what are the guarantees for these interns you know what uh, what are they going to be covered by. Uh, in terms of Taiwan's laws, you know, they're not going to be under the Labor Standards Act. Um, so I assume there'll be uh, some other form of contract that they'll be st- uh, under covered by. But if you look in Asia, I think there are other other concerns. In that, if you look at uh, the Japanese case with you know the trainee foreign trainees going there, um, there has been widespread exploitation of foreign trainees in Japan, and um, that would not be a good thing to happen uh, if mm-hmm. we if if we allowed that to happen in Taiwan. Mm. Yeah, and uh, also I think two years ago there was uh, really disturbing reports out of uh, Australia on the working holiday program and how many Taiwanese workers were getting exploited there as well. So yeah, that, that that I think you're right. I think that would be a tricky thing to work out. There's no question that internships have a potential to be abused. Uh, but I think the answer is that uh, for members of the American Chamber of Commerce or the European Chamber of Commerce, their problem is is that they find it difficult to attract foreigners to come to Taiwan because salaries are so low. The foreigners who are most likely to come to Taiwan are young people who've recently graduated, who are interested in coming to Taiwan to study Chinese, gain some life experience, and this sort of thing. This kind of internship is very widespread, contrary to what's been said in Taiwan, uh, through Europe and and the United States. Uh, with the proper controls, it shouldn't be a problem. The more interesting thing about this whole issue is that it probably has nothing to do with foreigners. What's really going on is there's a dispute between relatively left-wing members of the DPP, like Lin Shufen, who are trying to attract or possibly will move over to the NPP in the future, and they're 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 looking for votes, and so. Uh, the, the 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 issue is highly politicized. It's probably not really about foreigners at all. But what people should keep in mind is that this raft of changes, other than the internships, is the most important thing that's happened to foreigners in about twenty years in Taiwan. Hmm. So 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 basically, you you think that this is part of an effort to build up a political pedigree uh, before she makes makes that move is what you see there exactly mm-hmm. uh, she's she's what what's fascinating about the politics of what's happened is that the argument as I said there are people in the KMT who support this there are people in the DPP who support this there are mm-hmm. also people in both parties who oppose it so it's a completely bipartisan issue. Mm-hmm. The main argument has between has been between Lin Shufen and Karen Yu. And Karen Yu represents the more business-oriented side of the DPP, people who are interested in startups, innovative businesses, and this kind of thing. And Lin, Lin Shufen is the protector of workers mm-hmm. and the labor movement. Uh, and whether or not she's actually going to... Re- the difference is that she's an elected 
legislator, whereas Karen Yu is an at-large legislator. She has to answer to voters, and she's clearly found something, and I think the online response proves that she's right. She's found something that can mobilize voters, and she's using it. Mm. Yuan Ming, is that what you see here? I think it's really a great point that Michael brings up because um, we don't have to forget that uh, the DPP was swept into power by young people um, following the Sunflower Movement. Um, and so they, the, the, the young people are, are disaffected and um, they believe that you know, the DPP has kind of forgotten them. So I think um, the parts, these elements within the DPP, uh, they feel that this is too important of an issue not to tap into because the issue with Taiwan's stagnant wages, I mean, this is a a problem that has been going on for for decades. And so if the ruling party doesn't uh, make some kind of you know, has, has a stance on this, it will be uh, very difficult for them to, to mobilize uh, young people's support in 2018. Another thing, though, is that even though we're talking about, we don't know exactly how many people we're talking about in terms of yearly allocations, I believe that there are concerns about whether or not these um, intern uh, agreements or future norms will cause more flexibilization to Taiwan's workplace as a whole. Yeah. And so I think this has to be something that we continue to look at in the future. Yeah. One of the most interesting things about this entire firestorm, which has been occurring on the media and the internet, was that Chen Weiting, the Sunflower uh, Movement co-leader, actually spoke up and wrote an essay opposing this, which probably indicates what the Sunflower Movement generation thinks about this bill. Uh, they're opposed. Uh, so it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating situation. And one of the most interesting parts of it is that the international community is largely oblivious to what's been, that their fate is being discussed. <laughs> uh, pay attention, guys. Your fate is uh, in these guys' hands. All right, so uh, we're going to let that be the last point on that story. For the record, ICRT's internship program is extremely supportive of interns. They all have a great experience here. They have wonderful things to say about us. Just ask any of them. Of course, they are chained to the desks. Hey! And, and they do get to eat gruel once a day. That's expensive <laughs> gruel. We get the best gruel for our interns. Anyway, we are moving on, though. Last up for the show today, uh, setting out to sea can be scary even under the best of circumstances. You know, even with modern GPS and big old metal boats, it can be, you know, sea is a big place. It can be a little intimidating. It must have been downright terrifying when all you had was a wooden raft and a few paddles to get by. Well, a couple of researchers have decided they're going for it anyway, wooden raft and all. They'll actually be using a traditionally crafted raft to get from Taiwan to Okinawa, and they're doing it to test uh, some theories about ancient overseas migration routes, Gavin. Yeah, this was earlier this week. This was on Monday of this week, actually, in Taimali Township in Taidong County. A group of researchers um, launched a traditional bamboo raft, and they say that they're going, to, they're going to explore a sea route between Taiwan and Okinawa that they believe was travelled 30,000 years ago. Mm. Apparently, the boat is obviously being made. But the boat was made here in Taidong. It's a traditional army tri- style boat, tri-, tri boat, basically. Yep. Yeah, 
And apparently the oars, though, they had special paddles, and they were made in Yonaguni in Okinawa Prefecture. Of course. So, so it's oars, kind of an international effort. It was, it was international, Taiwan and Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple of teams there. Anyway, they planned to cross the Kuroshi Current and travel to Green Island. Okay. Later this month. That's 33 kilometers from, ta- from, from Taidong City. City to Green Island. It's a little warm-up act. And then they plan to travel from Taidong to Yonaguni in Okinawa. That's 110 kilometers on a raft made of bamboo. Even more difficult. Apparently 30,000 years ago, people did this. For pleasure, for fun, I don't know why you would travel... To move, to get a new (sighs) environment. 30,000 years ago, if you got on a bamboo raft and tried to travel 110 kilometres, chances are you ain't going to make it. Internships. Yes, put interns (laughs) on the raft. You don't pay them, do you? (laughs) They're going to get those sweet, sweet internships in Okinawa. That's where to find them. And if they make it to the other side, you give them a job. Perfect. But they've got to get back first. That's the test. But they've got to get back first. That is the test, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, apparently, one of the researchers, um, Li Yufun, the director of a, the, a, a museum, basically, in Taidong, the Taidong Prehistory Museum, has said that Taiwan has been a hub for migration in East Asia since ancient times, and the raft voyage will help scholars revisit how humans could have defied natural odds to explore the unknown. There we go. Well, it also kind of relates, I, I, I didn't see them say this explicitly, but it also relates to this idea that Taiwan may have been uh, ground zero for the population of uh, many Pacific islands. Yeah, because they reckon during the Paleolithic period that people <laughs> travelled between Taiwan and Okinawa. They do reckon that. Yuan Ming, so this is this is a, a kind of research. We see these sorts of research projects with uh, people trying to recreate these ancient roots uh, time and again. Is Is this a sort of research you are a fan of? Have you been following this? I haven't really been following it, but I, I know... Um uh, from the past that uh, several of these um, uh, recreations um, and the subsequent uh, voyages have been done in some uh, Pacific Island communities, mm-hmm. I, I believe to to Hawaii, if I'm not uh, mistaken. And um, certainly very interesting. I hope um, that they have uh, patrol craft to, to help <laughs> them in case things don't work out. But That wouldn't it, be very traditional. <laughs> but you have to have some safeguards, I, I suppose. Yeah. All right. Uh, Michael, you know, this this uh, this whole theory that Taiwan may have been the staging ground to populate many other places throughout the Pacific, are you, are you a fan of this theory? Well, it's fascinating if you travel in Micronesia and Polynesia and you see the obvious cultural connections between uh, Taiwanese aboriginals, uh, particularly the Amis, and the people in places like Palau or New Zealand. Uh, for example, one of the most obvious examples of the Pacific influence in Taiwan is the use of betel nut, mm. and which is something that is prevalent all over the Pacific and is not particularly prevalent in China. Mm-hmm. So it is very striking. Uh, it is it is it is a fascinating issue. I think that this particular voyage is not all that ambitious. It's only a hundred kilometers away. But it does remind us of something that many listeners might not be aware of, which is that Yonaguni Island, which is part of Okinawa, is only 110 kilometers or so off the coast of Ilan and Hualien. Mm. It's the southernmost point of Japan, mm-hmm. uh, and it's in our neighborhood. Yeah. So I think it makes sense for people to uh, travel uh, across the... the uh, across the, the strait to, uh, to Yonaguni. Uh, I'm 
my only question is, why are they doing this in typhoon season? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question. Well, hopefully they see the typhoons coming. So uh, there, was, there was one last year, of course, that failed. There was a, same, a group of people. They, this was a group of people in Japan that planned to do the same sort of journey mm-hmm. to Taiwan. Yeah, that, that they built a boat, they put it in the water for a test ride, and it. it I think it fell apart. Let's just say it, it didn't make it through the test phase of the operation so, so Gavin I, actually you, you, the point you're raising is, is a question that I have which is that I wonder if this journey and the one last year has more to do with the burgeoning relations between Taiwan and Japan more than it has to do with Taiwan exploring its possible Polynesian heritage it's, just throwing that out there is there a political angle to this could be could be uh, well, a, a quick poll of the room. Uh, Michael, would you get on that boat that's setting off uh, for Yanaguni Island? Hell no. <laughs> Yuan Ming, do you, do, do you think you'd uh, take the trip? Would you get the internship? Uh, I would insure myself first. Okay. <laughs> get a little life insurance. Uh, I'll do it. I think it might be quite good fun. All right. Gav, we, we, we have a new recruit for you guys if you need a new co-pilot of I your like boat. boats. There we go. All right. Well, we're going to round out that story uh, right there and actually move on to our final bonus podcast story. Now, that was a fun story that we just ended on uh, our, our, our broadcast on. But, Gavin, you have an even funnerer story for us uh, for the bonus story. I have a sad story. A sad story? Well, it depends that, on that, whose, I, I whose perspective a, you're looking at it from. a sad story about an elderly man that fast turns to absolutely comedic hilarity. Okay. All right, that's a good way to look at it. This is about a 63-year-old man. Now, he was wanted on fraud charges for 24 years. Mm-hmm. He committed securities fraud in mm-hmm. the 90s, yeah? Yep. He might be a nice bloke, but he did break the law. Ergo, the busies were looking for him. Obviously not every day, mm-hmm. if he's been on the run for 24 years, but he did have a wanted poster somewhere, mm-hmm. probably at the bottom of the pile on someone's <laughs> desk, I can imagine by now. Not a high, high priority. Anyway, this man, whose surname was Jung, he was on his little scooter, going a little bout about and bout and bout and bout in Kaohsiung City on Monday, when he inadvertently ran a red light. Now, he picked the wrong traffic light to run there because there was a policeman sitting at the traffic light just watching him do it. Said policeman chased after him, pulled him over in the city's Lingyard district and said, Excuse me, sir, can you help me with my inquiries because I believe you just ran a red light. The elderly gentleman denied running the red light, trying to make excuses, saying, I didn't see the light, officer. It was blocked. What can I do? Policeman said, right. What's your ID number? Man gives a fake ID number. That's really clever for a start. He? he commits securities fraud. Obviously, you need a brain to do that. He gives a fake ID number to a policeman. Anyway, they said, no, I don't think that's right, sir. Um, that's a fake ID number. Who are you really? Need to say, at this stage, the man panicked a bit because he thought he'd been nabbed by the police. Mm. He pretended to faint. Oh, officer, I've gone faint. Blood sugar levels, very low. Mm. He fell onto the pavement where he banged his head. And as the policeman was checking his ID to find out who he really was, the man was on the pavement bleeding profusely from a wound on his head. Yikes. Not a good plan. Not a good plan. It went to pot after that because the policeman found out he was full of BS. He wasn't the person he said he was. They took him to hospital. 
where they cuffed him to the bed. Mm. He got medical treatment for the gash on his head. He was then told that he was being arrested Uh-oh. for securities fraud, and along with being arrested for securities fraud, he was also being charged by the hospital 7,000 NT for his head injury uh. that was caused by himself when he tried to fall over. That is from the police. That is insult to injury. Yeah, the stories haven't said how much he got out of the securities fraud, though. I can imagine 1994, 1993 he committed the securities fraud. So if he'd done it today, he would have got a lot more money. Yeah. Obviously, obviously, he committed it in 1993. He's probably spent all the money he got then, so there you go. Here's the kicker. I mean, if you're if you're on the on the side of the criminal, here's the kicker is the fact that he was one year away from if, the statute of limitations being up. If he yeah, one year away and the police wouldn't have been able to do anything about him, but he ran that red light. Ran that red light. He was just too eager to go somewhere. There is a really sad short movie in this. Uh, I think it'd be a funny movie. You could make it a silent movie with lots of slapstick and it would be absolutely side-splitting Charlie funny. Chaplin would have done a great job, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Yuan Ming, so we're, we're, we're kind of having a little bit of a laugh at this poor security fraudster's uh, uh, expense. Do you think you would have done better than him? Do you think you would have been a better security fraudster than this guy? Not sure, but, uh, you know, karma and uh, running red lights. Always, always... It's you a know. good reminder. Yeah. It's a good reminder to not run the red line. Yeah. Of course, point. had he been a good securities fraudster, he wouldn't have been in Gashing anyway. He would have been in the Bahamas on a <laughs> beach with his feet up. Yeah, clearly not everything went exactly to plan in that securities fraud. Uh, Michael, do you think you, you, you might have done better than this gentleman? I think the more interesting thing about this story is that we've actually had a string of stories about people who are caught just before the statute of limitations runs out. Makes you wonder, really. It's it a conspiracy. Does, well, it, it makes you wonder that whether or not the real issue is is that the police rarely keep – that people who have a statute of limitations run out all the time and they rarely catch them. And therefore, when a story comes like, like this comes up, uh, a big deal is made out of it to show people that the police are actually on the job. Mm. So maybe some uh, selective reporting that we're getting right here. Exactly. Perhaps. Or maybe it's just the police. Maybe that. Maybe that. Maybe that. The papers at the bottom of the desk are brought to the top <laughs> they of the finally desk, got to and it. And they yeah. go right. We're getting him this man. Him. <laughs> Remember him because we're having him. <laughs> Another possibility. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. That is it for the show today. Please do join us next time. Time of this week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100, round about 8.15 p.m. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, a couple of other places. If you are listening to, through iTunes, please do remember to rate and subscribe. helps us out a lot there if you're of a mind to help us out. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Mancone, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. I think I'm going to go on the run now for 24 years. Um, we'll miss you. We'll miss you, Gavin. Also in studio with us is Yuan Ming Chow. Thanks for having me and have a great weekend. Always a positive sentiment from Yuan Ming Chow. And uh, rounding out the panel, we have Michael Fahey. Thank you, Michael. Thanks again, Keith. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. <laughs>